All right, last Sunday night, we took some time to identify those elements in our society that seek to separate us from the love of Christ. We learned in Sunday morning that though that God has made us more than conquerors through Christ and the means by which he has provided for us to overcome the enemies, but the enemies in that list really we don't associate with. We don't have the sword, we don't really have peril, we don't have those kinds of things happening to us. So we just listed off last week and we considered what it is that is today seeking to separate us from the love of Christ. Um, what are the enemies? Because we are confident, always confident, that every society that follows after Christ will engage the enemy. And there's ample concepts of spiritual warfare in Scripture to make us realize that we cannot just go to sleep and think that the enemy has gone to sleep with us. Um, but the realization is, is that the enemy is very active, very alert. And while it is not uh, the same enemy in its presentation, in its tactics, it is the same enemy. Tactics are different, but it's the same enemy. And so the tactics that we see there um, in Romans 8 of peril and the sword of, of famine and things along that line, we recognize, well, that's not my experience. That doesn't mean you don't have an enemy. Ours is much more subtle, but maybe in its subtlety it's become even more successful in its accomplishments of truly separating us from the love of Christ. So let's define a little bit of love of Christ. We're going to look at, and that goes, that was last week we talked about God, we have a mediator that uh, understands our weaknesses. He came as a man, was tempted, endured all things we, we endured. And so God knows what we're up against, and he is um, there to help. This evening, I want to take a different tact as we go in, in accordance with this morning's message. We're going to talk about our enemy and how we are to respond. What is it that we are to be actively engaging our enemy, and what does that look like in our society today, given our different enemy? Not a different enemy, different tactics. Given the different tactics of the enemy today, how do we respond? Is it the same as back in the day, when we were dealing with sword and famine and peril and open attack? Um, or is it different? And we're going to talk a little bit about that in terms of our tactics tonight, uh, against the enemies that we have. And before we do that, let's go Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your word before us. And we do pray that you might uh, grant by your spirit us to understand it and to bring it into our lives, to Inform ourselves to its truth and allow it to work in and through us to honor, praise, and glory in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Did you try to get Scott on there? He's not on? Okay. All right, so let's just quick review since a lot of you weren't here last Sunday night. What are our modern enemies that we're confronting? The media. Yes. We've got whole different moral code, not just homosexuality, but all across the way. We don't know boys from girls. We don't, marriage is, um, 
the only ones that seem to care about getting married are the homosexuals, and it's not even to be married. It's just to snub their nose at society and to God. Um, so the whole moral code is under attack completely. Um, probably the worst thing you can be on this planet and uh, is <laughs> heterosexual married person. Um, you have no respect for that position. All right, what else? We have all these distractions. Let's put a huge department. I'm trying to compartmentalize these into great big things instead of specific ones. We have distractions galore. We are a distracted people. And I'm not just talking about your cell phone and all this. Um, that's, that's just the epitome of distraction. But it really began a long time ago when I was a kid. Um, and there's... You know, it, it starts off benignly, but then it just takes over your life. And so we have distraction to the nth degree now that we do not give careful thought and time. And by the way, to come up with truth and concepts and of life philosophy requires thoughtfulness, but true thoughtfulness takes a lot of time to meditate and to study and to research and to examine, to read. And we don't see a lot of that doing. If it can't fit in a seven-minute YouTube video, we're not interested, right? So distraction. Yes? Immediacy. We have no long-termness. We must have immediate gratification. We must have quick answers. Um, we must have quick solutions because we have been trained through television that no problem takes longer than two hours to solve. Unless you got to take a ring to a volcano, then it takes like six and a half hours, seven hours, which could have been solved in an hour if they'd just given the ring to the eagles and they dropped it in the volcano. <laughs> Would have been over. But. Okay? But pretty much everything has to be solved in just a half hour, one hour, or two hours maximum. All problems can be solved in that. Um, and uh, just waiting for a screenshot to come up, if it takes more than 10 seconds, we are exasperated by that. Um, and so immediacy has, is separate us from the love of Christ. Because what does God, what does the love of Christ call us to? Ah, spend time with me. And by the way, it's not just your relationship with God that requires time. It's relationship with each other, which is why we don't have good relations with each other. When I see couples going out for Valentine's dinner and one sitting there on their phone, the other one sitting there on their phone, I can tell you they do not have a real relationship. They will fall apart. They will dissolve. Okay? So it requires attention. Attention span is gone. Um, and that's what it takes to build a relationship. What are some other things we had? All right, we have all the alcohol and drugs. And that's not necessarily new, but it, its prevalence and its availability is very different than in biblical times. Um, and uh, we have the capacity, not just the illegal alcohol, no, illegal drugs, we don't have any illegal alcohol, well, maybe a little bit, um, but even the legal stuff, you know, um, you're not supposed to deal with the fact that you have issues of realizing you're a sinner. The best response isn't to come to God and confess that and seek his forgiveness. The best thing to do is go to your psychologist, get some Zoloft or something, and relax. And then your feelings of desperation will go away with no solution, really. So drugs, alcohol, what else? 
What other enemies are we confronting? Real quick, this is just review. All right, and this is right out of the Bible. In the last days, people will have itching ears to find people to tell them what they want to hear. And we have the access to the, these guys can preach globally from their basement where they're losers, but they can set up a little stage to make them look like they're someone. And you'll never know the difference. And they have ridiculous followings and they and I sit down and listen to what they're saying it's a bunch of malarkey it's it's error it's false and it's empty and shallow but they've got two three hundred thousand followers on their channel I'm like why what in the world is the attraction to this no in fact yeah make sure you do it in a while you're sitting in a bathtub or something. I don't know. It's just obnoxious. Okay? So you have, you can find anybody to teach whatever you want to hear. More than any other time in history, you have access to that kind of thing. So we have lots of enemies that want to draw us away from a love relationship with Jesus Christ that will endure. And so we talked about the fact that Christ is aware of that and how Christ was involved in that last week. This week we're going to look at our Part. We talked almost a little theoretical this morning. Tonight we're going to talk a little more practical. And so let's look at several passages. Uh, let's start off in 2 Corinthians. If you'll turn there with me very quickly. 2 Corinthians. Uh, chapters 10 and 11. And just to touch base once again with this morning's message. Let's look at, this is, again, I had so many, so many verses I could have gone to this morning and, and dwelt on, and I actually had three for the Bible reading section that I could have chosen from, and I chose the last, the one I did um, this morning during Sunday school, actually. I was like, oh, I'll do that one. But here, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, um, verse 3. It says, but I fear, lest somehow... As the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And of all the passages I really looked at, including Galatians, that one really touched me because Paul says, listen, these people are corrupting your mind. Not just your thoughts, but even down to your very brain, they are corrupting. They are rewiring you. And we, science, scientists, uh, the medical community has already talked about that. And we, that one medical doctor, he is my hero um, of this day and age, that uh, said, I'm resigning my practice, I'm taking a hiatus, and I'm going around to all these schools because we've got to do something. And he's doing these things at schools, uh, talking to teachers, um, doing conferences, uh, doing uh, also um, assemblies with the students. And he's just talking about the effect of modern cultural norms on thinking, attention, and your brain. And what's going on and what the media is doing to it and other aspects of our society. 
And by the way, this isn't new to Hollywood. In fact, I remember when I was a young person that uh, the government outlawed a common practice in movie theaters. Do you know what that practice was? How many of you know what it was? That was outlawed by the government later on. Nope. Yeah. They had a flash one frame, a single frame showing a product. And it was subliminal messaging, and they were inserting it, and it made people hungry, made people thirsty. And they would have to get up and go get a drink pretty quick afterwards. And the government outlawed those. They were so effective, we had to use law to stop it. Yeah. You don't think they're using that today? Um, now the scenes flash so fast by you on, that some of those are almost tantamount to that practice. The flashing of movement and the rewiring of your brain because of that. That you can't sit still and listen. You can't give thoughtfulness to it because your eye gate is being engaged so quickly every second, every second and a half. You're getting a new scene, a new scene to, to extrapolate, to understand, to, to comprehend, and bam, 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 a new scene, a new scene. And so when you sit, have to sit in church and look at one guy for 40 minutes, you're like, oh, is this ever going to end? Well, that's because your brain has been rewired by society, by media. And yes, church used to be two and three hours because people could give their attention for that long. And our teachers have to deal with that in the school, right? Because kids can't sit there and deal with that. They just aren't wired to do that anymore. So we have these things pose this. They're corrupting our thinking. They want us to think about other things. They want to distract us and that, that we want to corrupt our thinking from the simplicity that is in Christ. And that is a very interesting word, the simplicity that is in Christ. Um, and you might think, well, that means the, the easygoingness or the, that's easy to understand. No, simplicity is, the, is that plainness. It's just plain truth. Um, we use the term more comparable in this setting, the simple lifestyle. What are we referring to? Unplugged, the simple lifestyle. It means that you're just not running in the rat race. You've kind of disengaged from your society and engaged in just the basics of life, that I really don't need to chase after all this stuff. I really need just to have food, water, shelter, and, and I can acquire that on a simple, on a basic level without being in the rat race and why have all the stress and all the all that nonsense in my life and that's really what's kind of brought out here that there's a simplicity in Christ that we can disengage from the world and have this this very real relationship with God um, without all the the Satan is trying to corrupt he's trying to muddy the waters well, what does that mean to muddy waters well you have clear water, that's pretty simple, right? Clear water, H2O, clear water. What does Satan do? How do you muddy it? 
Do you make it less or do you add more? You are adjunct to it. And you start saying, well, did he mean this? Does he mean that? Does he do this? You know, and we start to go, oh, man, now I've got to deal with all this. And, and by the way, um, I love when Hebrews says, you know, uh, let's go past the elementary teachings of Christ so we can get into something a little bit deeper. But we have to keep going back to the elementary teachings of Christ because false teachers keep muddying the waters of the simplicity of Christ. And that's what the media is doing. They're muddying your thinking. And it sounds like you're smart, but in fact, you've added so many ridiculous questions that you've made yourself irrelevant even to yourself. Did God really say? Do you see what Satan does with Eve? Did God really say? I mean, wasn't his command pretty direct and simple? Wasn't there a simplicity in what God said to Adam and Eve in the garden? Eat of every tree, except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You shall not even the day you eat it, you shall surely die. That is a pretty simple thing to understand. Right? Simple, direct command. Right? And Satan comes in, what does he do? He corrupts their thinking. What does that mean? Well, it means what it says. It means what it does. It's not hard. It's not difficult. But they muddy it. And they start swirling things around in there. And pretty soon it's all cloudy. And you go, oh man, I'm so confused. You're only confused because your thinking has been corrupted by the evil one. So what do we have to defend ourselves? What are we supposed to be engaging in? And this is something that, a word that we don't hear bantered around in the Christian community very often these days, and that is discernment. Not only discernment in knowing truth from error, but to know what to listen to. And we're going to be talking about who we trust, who we have been trusting. Um, and we, one of the things that you didn't list is that one of the main enemies that we confront is our scientists. They want to separate you from the love of Christ. That is their goal. They have a belief system that is in direct opposition to the truth of God's word. Do they not? They have government funding for it. They have government backing for it. They should be a 501c3 organization. That's to follow all the rules of all the others. But they are not. They are, and so I always tell people, you go to the Church of Evolution down there every now and then? I stopped going. I can't go to that place anymore, the Church of Evolution down there that our city funds, your tax dollars fund. Oh, they call it something else, but that's what it is. And so scientists, I think, are one of the number one elements of our society that want to separate you from the love of Christ. Do you trust them or God's word? And we're going to investigate that a couple times deeply. The evolutionary model and in other aspects that, that, are, that re, the evolutionary model needs. The evolutionary model needs several things. And those had to be introduced first, and they were, and we allowed them, hook, line, and sinker. So we're going to talk about some of those enemies we have today. But the corrupting of our thinking needs to be recognized that this is, this is Satan's tactic. And whether he uses it directly or indirectly or subtly, um, this is what he does. And so let's back up in first second Corinthians chapter 10 and let's see what Paul is this is kind of his summary statement. Let's go back to some of his discussion. Uh, let's pick up second Corinthians chapter 10 verse 3. 
For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. All right, we have a war. The preservation of your faith is a war. Be alert, be alert, be alert. Stand fast, be alert. There's an enemy about, be on your guard. No time for sulking, no time for, for being distracted, no time for sleep. Be alert. Here we go. Verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, that is fleshly, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Wow. Now you begin to see what he expects you as soldiers of Christ to do in your own war against the enemy. Bring every thought into captivity. Wow. Every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. I'm not going to let my thoughts wander into places they shouldn't go. And boy, the world wants you to. They want you to explore avenues of, oh, you can blame your mommy for this and your daddy for this, and you can blame them for that. Uh, they just want you to wallow in self-pity. Why? Because you'll never obey Christ in that condition. It's a form of pride and self-esteem that needs to be cast out. The Bible says, humble yourself. Not exalt yourself. Exalt Christ in your life. Humble yourself. So bring every thought into captivity. And the world wants you to just let your thoughts roam. And ultimately, you know, and you've heard me talk about, you know, they hook people up to those brain scanners while they're watching TV. And what do they find? Your brain is less active while watching TV than while you are asleep. Let that sink in a little bit. Your brain is less active while watching TV than while you are asleep. You are not bringing every thought into captivity. And that's why if you sit and watch TV with me, my kids know, what am I constantly doing? And it gets, they get riled up sometimes. Why can't you shut up and watch the show? Because I want to keep my brain active. And I know what they're trying to do. They're trying to put me to sleep. And put me into an entertainment coma. The Bible says, capture every thought. Keep it under your control, under your thumb. Don't let it wander off into these areas of sin. And we, we hear the Pentecostals and, and all of those really, we're going to pull down strongholds, we're going to do all this. And they act, and, but those strongholds are talking about, those arguments, those high things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. Um, are prevalent in their services. Anything that distracts you from thinking and meditating on and living in the love of Christ. And so we want to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and be ready, being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. And that idea of your obedience being fulfilled, what does that 
That is your glorification. That is your preservation. That is your completion. When your obedience is full, completed, accomplished, attained to this morning in Philippians, then what's going to come? The punishment of disobedience. Turn with me to Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59, and this is going to take us to our main text tonight, which (laughs) I'm way behind on. All right, Isaiah 59. Just think about our enemies and look at how Isaiah describes society before God's judgment. You ready? Um, Let's pick up in verse... Oh, let's read the chapter. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. So there it is. It has separated you from the love of God. So this is what's going on in Israel in the day of Isaiah. For your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue has muttered perversity, and that's why I hate muttering people. If you're going to say something to me, say it out loud. Say, my kids do that, and they're walking out, and I can't understand it. Oh, man, if they knew how angry that made me, how disgusted I am with that kind of, because that's what the Bible describes as rebellion. Tongue is muttering perversity. No one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. They hatch vipers' eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed a viper breaks out. Their webs will not become garments, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity. And the acts of violence is in their hands. Sound familiar at all to any of this? Their feet run to evil. They make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. Oh boy, don't even get me started there. I don't have time. I need like another hour. The way of peace they have not known. There is no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, nor does righteousness overtake us. We look for light, but there is darkness for brightness, but we walk in blackness. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as at twilight. We are as dead men in desolate places. We We all growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. That's about what the church has gotten down to. We groan about it. We complain about it. Um, we, but nothing really happens. We look for justice, but there's none. For salvation, but it's far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us. And as for our iniquities, we know them. In transgression and lying against the Lord and departing from our God. There it is again, separating from the love of Christ. Speak oppression and revolt, that's rebellion, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. 
Justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off, for truth is fallen in the street. You speak truth in the street, nobody wants to hear it. You're talking to yourself. And I would challenge you to go out to UNM campus and walk around and try to speak truth to people. They do not want to hear it. They will laugh at you, disregard you at best, or disrespect you more likely. Where did I leave off at? Where's the street? 14. And equity cannot enter. So truth fails, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. If you try to live righteously, you become the enemy. You become the one we attack. We attack the righteous, not the sinners. The Bible says this is unjust. And then the middle of verse 15. Then the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him and his own righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, accordingly, he will repay. Fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, the coastlands he will fully repay. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the spear Lord will lift up a standard against him. The Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. Wow. Were you expecting that? You see, when your righteousness is fulfilled, God will punish unrighteousness. The end of this age, when it's all said and done, if we can sustain and endure our faith in God and walk in righteousness and truth till his coming, the only thing left once his coming occurs is judgment. He is coming with a rod to hammer society. And that's what Paul's talking about in Corinthians. Now, as I just read that description of Christ in the midst of judgment, what does it remind you of? Ah, Ephesians chapter 5. Direct correlation, right? Ephesians 5. Here's what you've got to do. Put on the full armor of God. We often think of the armor of God, and we've always spoken of it in, in human terms, but we forget that God is clothed in this armor first, back in Isaiah 59. Now he says, you want to fight the enemy? You want to engage in the spiritual warfare? You're going to have to clothe yourself like I clothe myself against injustice. When we're dealing with men wanting to corrupt our thinking, wanting to separate us from the love of Christ, what we have to do is put on the full armor of God. And these images of Isaiah 59, Paul picks up on Ephesians chapter 5. Turn with their chapter 6, sorry, I said chapter 5. Chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. There it is. Strong in the Lord and the power of his might. That combination again. You ready? Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the tactics of the devil fiery darts, the tactics of the devil. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Now notice, and I think this is really for our generation more than any other generation, that you may be able to stand not in all the evil days, but in the evil day. He is referring to an eschatological period of time where there will be zero justice for those of faith. Sound familiar? What happens if a Christian businessman doesn't want to do business with homosexuals in our country? They will lose their business. That has happened now numerous times, multiple times, and all the appeals have failed and failed miserably. In fact, just last week, the final appeal for that one bakery or something was, uh, was determined against them, against the Christians. Okay? We are in the war. So we have this going on. So we have the evil day is referring really to a period of time eschatologically that Paul talks about in Timothy as well, that when that day comes, this is what it'll look like. Men will be lovers of themselves, boastful, pride, proud, disobedient parents. And it describes it there in Timothy. Um, and so he's talking about in that, in the, the evil day. So there is an eschatological period of time that being a Christian is going to be extraordinarily difficult. And he says, you're going to be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore. Do you get the impression? What you have to do is stand your ground. Just to stand is going to make you be the victim. Just taking your stand and saying, I stand for the truth. That's all it takes to be the enemy of society. You don't have to go out there and condemn. Um, and it's interesting to hear these companies as well. If, if they want to be homosexual, they can be homosexual, but I just choose not to help them. That's a stand. That's not an attack. That's a stand. I want to do this with my business. That's a stand. That's not an assault. They're not trying to kill homosexuals. They're not trying to imprison them. They're not trying to put them into mental institutions um, where we used to put them. Um, they're not trying to do any of that. They're just taking a stand, and that makes you the enemy. So stand. And of course, here it goes. What do we start off with? Because Satan's primary tactic is to corrupt the, your mind of the truth, the first thing he tells you is gird your waist with truth. Gird yourself with the truth. What is the truth? Jesus Christ is the personification of truth. God's word is true. And we are to fill ourselves, to gird ourselves. That is to just tie it up. That is to, that's the, by the way, the belt in their society was the derivative of everything else. Everything else was tied to that belt, and it kept everything else in its place, save the helmet. And so that belt was where your sword was, but it also was where your breastplate tied into. It was also where your leg armor is all tied to this belt. Pretty wide band. So this isn't a light-duty thing. This isn't, you know, this little thing. This is a substantial aspect of your armor that everything else hangs on and ties to, and it says, gird yourself with the truth. And again, Isaiah used that earlier as well. Um, we didn't read that passage. Um, it was earlier in Isaiah, maybe 
I don't remember. I don't remember the chapter. I don't want to lead you astray. But he talks about being girded with truth and righteousness. So we gird ourselves with the truth. Why? Why do you need to know the truth so much? Because that's Satan's attack, is to corrupt your thinking. Why am I so careful? Why do I not want to be distracted by the world? Um, sports, to me, used to be my life, almost, as a young person. I would know scores. I would know... Uh, and uh, it, it, I couldn't wait to get done preaching to go home and watch some football. I wasn't always like I am. My wife can attest to that. But I realized something, that it was corrupting my thinking. It was separating me from the love of Christ. And so, yeah, I look at the sports page on the, on, in the newspaper for about, I don't know, three minutes. My wife reads the sports page a lot more thoroughly than I do. I flip through it. There's something interesting. Usually I'm looking for local stuff, sports. I just kind of smile when I see the UNM sports. They lost again or whatever. Um, but uh, I usually look at the local things, trying to see local kids' names in there and things like that. But... Uh, it was corrupting my thinking. It was separating me from my love of Christ, from my pursuit of Christ. I wanted to pursue that. And we can fill in the blank, whatever. And so how do we do that? We gird ourselves with the truth and we pursue that first in our life. Next time, he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. And truth and righteousness in, in Scripture have always correlated with each other. And I'm going to look in here. Oh, yeah, it is in here. Isaiah 11. It's in my cross-reference. Isaiah 11, um, in my center column cross-reference, that's the chapter I was trying to think of, uh, is where truth and righteousness are both girded on God. God says, I surround myself, gird myself with truth, and I gird myself with righteousness. He says, listen. Truth, righteousness, they go together. To know the truth and to obey the truth. This is what you must do. You must know the truth and you must obey the truth. The passion of your life needs to be that. The pursuit of your life needs to be to know the truth and to live the truth. If not, you are setting yourself up for failure. You're setting yourself up for a faith crisis. You really are. Where you will not follow after God. You will not pursue him. You will give up on him and you'll say it wasn't worth it. I tried it. Don't care for it. Uh, it's for other people, not for me. Blah, 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 blah. And you'll excuse yourself from your faith and God will say, I don't know who you are. Depart from me. You're a worker of iniquity. Because you didn't invest yourself in the truth and you didn't invest yourself in righteousness. You didn't pursue those first in your life and foremost. And again, we try to communicate to our children they need to be spending time in God's word. We try to do that through our word life clubs, our Sunday school. Um, but if they don't see mom and dad doing that at all, if they don't see the principles of God's word at work in your home um, that we say, because God said so. They're not going to catch it by osmosis 
because we cannot possibly, in just Sunday school and or life clubs, overcome all the input Satan has put into them for, during the week between media and the educational system and their peers. Can't possibly overcome that ratio. Then it says, verse 15, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And that's kind of an interesting phrase. We often focus on the gospel part of that, of peace. What does it mean to have the preparation of the gospel of peace? What does that mean? Your feet aren't shod with the gospel of peace. Your feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. What is that? What does it mean to have the preparation of the gospel of peace? Any ideas? All right. Not just for the attacks, but for sharing the gospel. It takes preparation. It takes study. It takes... Um, application of yourself to have the gospel of peace in your life. We all want that peace, but we don't reckon, we think God should just impart it to us. But we need to prepare for that. The way we prepare for peace is through understanding the will and purposes of God. He wants everyone to be saved. That's the good news of peace. So God wants a relationship with it. To prepare yourself for that good news, to prepare the preparation, is that you're going to engage yourself. That that's going to get you going. Their feet shod with the going, not just to share, not evangelism. We often associate this with evangelism. I want to take it a different tactic. It's putting your, your faith into practice. Okay? What happens when you're preparing for supper? Ladies, gentlemen, what happens when you're preparing for supper? Are you sitting at, in the recliner? Preparing supper? <laughs> the if you're involved in the preparation of supper, you are active. If you're preparing for exam, are you sleeping? I know some of you think that works, to put the textbook under your head and sleep on it, but it doesn't work. To prepare for an exam means you have engaged yourself in the activity of studying. To have your feet shod with preparing yourself to walk the gospel, the good news of peace. It means you're going to be active, an active faith. Yeah, it's on your feet. Walk it. Right. Walk the walk. And above all, taking the shield of faith. And again, that's been our thing the whole time. You have enduring faith so that nothing will separate you from the love of Christ. The shield of faith by which you'll be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. You can stop the enemy in his tracks. But it requires you to have a mature faith that says, I will stand no matter what it costs. And the world, when they're confronted with that, even though they hate you and destroy you, will be taken 
by you. Wow. That was different. I'll take your name calling, I'll take your spitting, I'll take your ranting, I'll take your laughter, I'll take your rocks and Molotov cocktails, I'll take your court fines, and I'll take you, close my business, I'm standing firm. Because I trust the one that I stand in. And the world has to take notice. And so he says, you can quench the darts of the evil one. And then he adds to take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, uh, praying always with all prayer and supplication, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And so you can see that he has before him the end. And he says, listen, the evil day, if you want to stand, you're going to have to engage yourself in this kind of activity. You're going to have to fully arm yourself. You have to recognize you are involved in full-scale warfare on a spiritual level. Don't become a spiritual casualty by running out to war unprepared and unarmed and unshielded. What foolishness that is. Don't be overrun by the enemy because all your armor was over there in the corner on Sunday and the enemy attacked you on Tuesday and you weren't wearing any of it. And you were asleep at the wheel of your life. You've got to put this on as a permanent installation in your life that you're actively engaged in. And that is part of the preservation of the, of the completion of your salvation. The part that you have to play. But notice that all of these pieces of the armor come from someone. They are not of your own generation. You don't make them. God will give them to you. You simply have to pick them up and use them. You don't have to make faith. You don't have to make the word of God. You don't have to make righteousness. You don't have to make up truth. God has already provided all of these things. You simply have to wrap yourself up in them. Instead of having yourself wrapped up in your work or wrapped up in your family or wrapped up in your entertainment or wrapped up in your hobby or wrapped up in whatever, yourself. Oh, that we would wrap ourselves up in the truth, righteousness, salvation, the preparation of the gospel of peace and the sword of the Spirit and in prayer. Oh, that we would wrap ourselves up in this. This is how we look like God in the evil day and avoid his implementation of justice through judgment. Because that's what he's going to look like on the day of judgment. And I don't know about you, but I want to look like him and not like everyone else that he's getting ready to lay it on him on that day when he shows up. I want to be dressed like he's dressed because that's the uniform of the winners. <laughs> I don't want to be in the wrong uniform on the day of judgment. I want to be dressed like God's dressed. And brethren, when you go out in the world tomorrow, you should be wearing 
the uniform of God. Everyone should look at you and say, oh, you're one of his. It should be that obvious. And it can be. You just have to make it that way. Apply yourself. Prepare yourself for war. And wrap yourself up. So the truth, and we're going to be talking a lot about truth in the book of Jude. Okay, We're going to be talking a lot about it. And about who you're trusting. And why do you trust that? When the Bible says something very different. Okay, That's how we're praying. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your word. And that you have given us your truth. That we can trust it. That, Lord, we can live by it with confidence. That the gates of hell can't stand up against it. That our enemies, though they hate it and despise us for it, cannot destroy it. So Lord, help us to walk out dressed in your truth, in righteousness, with our faith right out there in front of us, first and foremost. We might see our faith first, then your truth and your righteousness in our life, our salvation. Lord, in all of this, that we might be prepared to walk the walk of the gospel before men. Lord, our enemy is subtle and he has overrun too many churches and too many believers' lives and too many who thought themselves believers but were not. Lord, help us to stand in the evil day that is around us this day. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.